As it was said earlier, this is going to be the, the most points I've ever had in a sermon. I'm not going to try and outdo Lance Quinn. It's hard enough following up a week after he was here. Um, so I hate to drop your hopes like that, but, you know, um, Dr. Quinn is a wonderful, wonderful, faithful pastor and minister of the word. It's nice to see you all have finally arrived. You have pews. I think that's the that's the mark of a church south of the Mason-Dixon, right? You got pews, and they're padded. Nice. Just don't fall asleep on me. Philippians chapter 4. Follow along as I read verses 4 through 7. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Bow with me before we dive into this. Father, as we approach your word, open the eyes of our hearts, humble our our hardened spirits to hear your word and to receive your text. Father, help me to be clear as I present your word to your people this morning. I pray that hearts would be receptive and that the clarity of this passage would speak for itself. Father, be glorified in all that we say and do this morning. It's in your name I pray. Amen. Well, there's a lot of conflict in the world today, isn't there? At many times throughout world history, we see wars and rumors of wars and uh, nations going to war. And even today, uh, even in a world that is supposed to have gotten better over thousands of years, over millennia, we still nation, see nations rising against nation and invading other nations, even in the supposed civilized Western world, nations are still fighting with one another, as you can see with Russia and Ukraine. It is a sad testament to the nature of where we are as humankind. Genesis 3 is such a reality in history that it doesn't matter how far civilization has come, no matter how far civilization progresses technologically, philosophically, no matter how developed our theology is, mankind is still at core sinful. And peace still slips out of our grasp because of sin. We see that even in our own personal lives. Things in light of war that seem so flippant, uh, things like grades, things like job loss, financial ruin, they, they plague our minds, they plague our souls, they, they rob us of peace, of joy in the Lord. And Paul says that doesn't have to happen. That doesn't have to be the case. Paul is opening some of his final thoughts for the Philippians here with the command to rejoice. He's done it once already in chapter 3, verse 1. He says, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. 
And then again here in chapter 4, he, he repeats that command, rejoice in the Lord. Well, we're going to take a journey on the pathway to peace this morning. What does it look like for a believer to have peace in the Lord, to have joy in the Lord? What does that pathway look like? And so we're going to explore six essential guideposts that mark that pathway to peace this morning from this passage. And the first one is going to be an incessant joy in the Lord. Incessant joy in the Lord. I know I put something else in the bulletin. I'm sorry. I changed it up. I'm indecisive. Incessant joy in the Lord. What is joy? Biblically speaking, what is joy? Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. James says, count it all joy when you encounter trials of various kinds. What does it mean to have joy? Joy can be best described as that state of being in which we are most glad and content in whatever circumstance we find ourselves. You see Paul even say that later on in chapter 4. He says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you lacked opportunity. Look at verse 12. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. By having the most taken out of context verse in context, Paul has joy. Verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Joy is a supernatural contentment in where the Lord has you now. Whenever now is. And so this command to rejoice, it is a command to always rejoice, to do so incessantly. Yet a joy that is not grounded biblically cannot offer hope to a sufferer. A joy that is not grounded biblically cannot offer hope Hope for those who are persecuted or downtrodden. Joy must be grounded biblically. It must be grounded in biblical truth and the reality we live in. If we ground our joy, our happiness, our gladness, our contentment in temporal and transient flitting desires in this world, they will just slip away and peace will be absent from life we will be sorely disappointed. We've all seen, we've all been a part of the lives of friends who, who have gone through depression, friends who have anxiety or panic attacks. We've all seen friends and family who have sought fulfillment and satisfaction outside of Christ in response to whatever the pressures of life have led them to. We've all seen the depravity of self-fulfillment, the pursuit of wanton pleasure, whether it's family or friends, co-workers. When joy is motivated, when the pursuit of joy is fueled by the wrong object, it will inevitably fizzle out and end. There can be no lasting happiness, no lasting joy where Christ is not the grounding, where joy is then absent. And so Paul says, rejoice 
always, always, incessantly rejoice. We all go through times of difficulty. We all experience trial and suffering. Some more than others. Some have physical ailments. Some have chronic disease. And some go through spiritual spiritual depression and uh, spiritual bombardments that some of us can't even imagine. And yet the command is the same for them and for us. The command doesn't change from person to person, time to time, or situation to situation. It is always the same. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. How can we rejoice when the situation is dire? How can you rejoice when the enemy is at the doorstep and you've lost all defense? On the brink of financial ruin. On the brink of a job loss. On the brink of the death of a loved one. How can we rejoice? What does Paul mean by that? There are innumerable ways in which believers will experience suffering and trial in life. And yet Paul is clear. There is no time in our lives when we are to be without joy, without that supernatural contentment in where the Lord has us at any given moment. Even in the midst of job loss, financial ruin, physical pain, chronic suffering, Even in those times, joy can and must be chosen. You cannot, as believers, allow life's circumstances to dictate your emotional or your spiritual well-being. What I mean is this. Every moment of our life is an opportunity for us to correctly and biblically ground our joy where it will yield fruit, both spiritually for us and for the gospel. We stand as the church visibly before the world. If our joy is in the same thing that the world takes joy in, the fleeting pleasures and passions, there's no reason for them to join us. There's no reason for them to look at the kingdom of God that is coming and say, yeah, I want to be a part of that. Every moment of our life is an opportunity for us to correctly and biblically ground our joy where it will yield fruit or, conversely, where it will only breed greater suffering. There is no peace where there is no joy. This ends up being year by year, day by day, moment by moment and sometimes second by second. This is an active choice, an active act of the will to cling to the sovereignty of God. What we know of God's character must ground our joy in Him, our gladness in Him, our knowledge of His Word and what He has revealed of Himself must ground our joy or we will fall. It is a lifestyle. This command is a present, active command. 
It, it, it's something that Paul sees as a lifestyle command, not just a once and done. Choose joy now and it lasts for eternity. It's a day-by-day exhortation. It is repeated, ongoing, habitual. It is both corporately and individually a command we must choose. It must be the fabric of our lives as believers. It doesn't excuse some circumstances in favor of others. It is commanded of all. We're called to live our lives in such a way that we are adamantly, constantly, incessantly joyful. Even when our circumstances in life seem to dictate a response that to the world would seem right, such as anger or depression or sadness, melancholy, we must choose joy. And we have the basis for this. In Christ, we have the basis for this. We have freedom from sin. We have reconciliation with the Father. This is the grounding for our hope. If we cling to that, there is no amount of war, no amount of suffering, no amount of trial or disappointment in life that can take us away from that. And where there is joy, there will be peace. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Paul directs believers to do all things for the glory of God. Even the most mundane of things such as eating and drinking. Everything we do must be done for the glory of God. And that is how you ground your joy. Every moment of your life must be done, must be undertaken as an act of worship to the Creator. There is no other way to live. And this is super easy, right? No. I wish it was. Paul understands the human condition. He understands the temptation we all face to cave into temptation and anxiety. He understands that joy ungrounded is not joy, so he also points us to the right basis for joy in Christ. Our sphere of joy is Christ Look at verse 4 again. Rejoice in the Lord. Christ is our sphere of happiness, our sphere of gladness and contentment. Again, look at verse 13. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Paul's contentment is contingent upon having Christ, being in Christ. There is no joy outside of Christ. There is no peace outside of joy. Are you, as a believer, experiencing temptation? Turn to Christ. Are you being tempted to fall into anxiety and a depressive, depressive mood swing? Turn to Christ. Choose Christ. Turn your mind, wrench your mind to the things that are right and true and beautiful and good. Turn to Christ. That which is most beautiful is Christ. If Christ is sufficient as a sacrifice to pay our debt of sin to the Father, to God, he must also be sufficient to be our foundation for ongoing, incessant joy. Paul says to rejoice in the Lord. 
a believer seeking his or her satisfaction outside of Christ is like a fish trying to survive out of the pond. You cannot survive as a believer apart from joy in Christ. A person claiming Christ who does not live, breathe, survive in Christ has no basis to call themselves a believer. If your life is not marked by Christ, by joy in Christ, we have no basis to make that claim. Turn back to chapter 3 and look at verses 20 and 21. Philippians 3, 20 through 21. Paul says, Our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. What is our hope? Paul is looking ahead to what is to come. Christ is coming back. And when he comes back, we're going to have the same manner of body he has. So those who have physical suffering can take hope now, can have joy now, can be glad now, can choose joy now. Though their body is broken, they will be made new. They will share in a glorified body like Christ. That is the basis of our hope as believers. This world will be transformed. We will be made like Him. It is the great hope for those who suffer in this present age. Christ is our all in all, our sufficient hope. He is our atmosphere of joy, our happiness. And when He is your joy, all the pain of the present darkness will fade away because you know that your hope is not in this world. Your citizenship is in heaven. When Christ is your joy, the present darkness is blotted out in the brightness of the revelation of His glory. So rejoice in the Lord, for He is the one, the only one who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory by His power. Note that Paul repeats the command. This is the third time he's given the command in this letter. Rejoice. First in 3.1, second here in 4.4, and again in the second half of 4.4. You think it's important to him that believers choose joy? Yeah. There is no peace outside of joy. He so firmly believes this that he emphasizes that point by repeating the command. This joy is so real, so probable, so essential, so hope-inducing that he says it again, rejoice. An incessant joy is our first guidepost. Our second guidepost on the pathway to peace is a renowned forbearance. The New American Standard says, let your gentle spirit be known to all men. That word for gentle spirit may better be translated as a forbearance or a tolerance. It has to do with not taking hold of what is rightfully yours, though someone has taken it from you. 
It is best illustrated back in Philippians chapter 2. Chapter 2, with the example of Christ, where Paul says in verse 5, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard it equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to. He had the right of the divine nature. He had the right to come to earth and do as he pleased. And yet he took the humble form of a servant, a slave, and became obedient. God became obedient in the form of a man. He did not demand his right as God to be worshipped, but he came and lived his life perfectly to fulfill the requirements of the law, the holiness and righteousness of God on our behalf. Not only must our lives be marked by an incessant joy, but we must be renowned for this long-suffering, this tolerance when we are wronged. In the face of persecution, what is your response? What do you run to? As Americans, we have a constitution that's going to defend our liberties. Do you rely more on your Second Amendment, First Amendment, Fifth Amendment, X number of amendment rights, more than you depend upon Christ for your joy and your happiness? If the government removed the Constitution from the government tomorrow, could you still honestly say, I rejoice in the Lord? As an American, that's a hard question to answer. There are plenty of countries out there that do not have a governmental order that would allow that, that would allow the freedoms or the possibility to be able to say no to that. The vast majority of the life of the church, believers had no rights. Whether it was under the Roman Catholic priesthood or under the Roman Empire, The church that demanded their rights was not renowned for their forbearance and their Christ-likeness. They were renowned for abusing power, for abusing what was not theirs to have, what God had not given them. This tolerance is a, a voluntary laying aside of what is rightfully yours, not insisting on every right or letter of law that is customarily due to you. It's not simply a a negative restraint, but positive in giving up to the reasonable desires of others. And I would say even the unreasonable side of it as well. If the government comes to your door tomorrow and forces you into prison for being a believer Are you going to strike back at the officer who's arresting you? I don't think we have that option. There are days ahead where we will face persecution. If we do not choose joy in the Lord and are not renowned for forbearance, we will not have peace. A few notes on this tolerance. 
First, it's observable. The verb Paul uses here is passive. This is something we're to be known as, be renowned for. It's something that must characterize who we are as believers, so that in the same way that Christ laid aside his divine right to exercise his divine attributes when he was incarnated, we lay aside our own notions of rights for the sake of one another and for the sake and cause of the gospel. It must mark the church, both individually and corporately, as a quality of the church. It's not wrong to pursue your rights as an American. It's not wrong to pursue what the Constitution has granted you. But do you lean on that more heavily than you lean on Christ? Do you take more joy? Do you found yourself more securely in the Constitution or in the Word of God? If our pursuit of those constitutional rights begins to mark us more than our tolerance or our kindness, we're in trouble. The question to ask yourself, are you known more for your joy in Christ or your national fervor? Now, I grew up in the South. I'm a patriotic man. But Christ is all. He must be all. Nations come, nations rise, nations fall. Our citizenship is in heaven, not here. This is also an undeniable and a natural forbearance or tolerance. It's something that must come naturally. If you have joy in the Lord, if you are in Christ, it will come naturally. It's something that is plainly seen by outsiders and is plainly evidenced within the church in our love for one another, within our own circles. The revelation of this quality must be undeniable and self-evident to all men, whether they're young and old, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're in power or out of power, whether they're the president we didn't vote for, the governor we didn't elect, our tolerance must be undeniable in the sight of all men. The pathway to peace is marked by the guideposts of incessant joy in the Lord a renowned forbearance and sacrificially giving of yourself for the benefit of others. And now third, by marking the Lord's imminence. Look what Paul says at the end of verse 5. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. It almost seems like a throwaway line, but it's not. It's transitional between what Paul just said at the beginning of verse 5 and what he's about to say in verses 6 and 7. What he's saying is this. The Lord will return and we don't know when. You must be known to all men as tolerant, forbearing, 
loving and kind because the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Be prepared for when he returns. It's almost foreboding in its presence in light of the beginning of verse 5. Don't demand your own rights. The Lord is near. Who is this Lord? The same one of chapter 2. The same one who gave up his divine throne so that he could be incarnated in a body of humble means. The one who gave up his right as the Son of God and became man, sacrificing his life and blood. One commentator puts it this way Since Jesus may appear at any moment, we ought to treat every moment and each person with great care and patience. Because the Lord is near, our patience with one another, our patience toward outsiders, must win the day in our heart. Our joy in the Lord must be full. It must be firm. And so the pathway to peace is marked not just by the guideposts of incessant joy, renowned forbearance, but also marking the imminence of the Lord in our own minds. Having this firmly fixed in our minds so that when we look out at the person that we really don't want to love, or the person we know is going to be demanding of us, we see Christ, not standing in their place, but standing there reminding us, I'm coming. Call them. Call them to come. So the guideposts of incessant joy, renowned forbearance, and marking the imminence of the Lord finally for being steadfast in uncertainty. Being steadfast in uncertainty. Paul is now laying out the believer's framework for what to be anxious about. Look at chapter, verse 6. Be anxious for nothing. Paul's next command is to be anxious. The construction he uses there is literally be anxious. It calls back to mind Matthew chapter 6, where Christ himself says, do not be anxious about anything. Paul here is saying be anxious, but the object he says to be anxious about is what? Nothing. He's not just, sorry, I'm going to go a little grammatical on you. He's not just taking a verb and negating a verb. He's taking a verb and then saying, here's the object of the verb, and it's nothing. Sorry, I like to geek out about that a little bit. It's not, I threw the ball, but be anxious about nothing. There's nothing on the planet, nothing in this world for which we must be anxious about. That's an exciting thought. If we can be anxious about nothing, if there is nothing for which we must be anxious, nothing for which we should be anxious, 
uh, makes a lot of my nightmares kind of seem dull. Even in the midst of dire medical prognoses, even when your grandmother has cancer, even when there's a, a midterm or a final coming up that you forgot to study for, yeah. Even in the midst of those circumstances, Paul says there is nothing to be anxious about. Nothing. It's a negative reference to an entity, an event, a condition. There is nothing the believer ought to be anxious over. There is nothing the believer has to fear. Paul is referring to an absence of specific, non-specific, whatever it is, events, entities, situations, circumstances. There is nothing we ought to... Have I gotten my point across? Nothing. Two words in Greek. Nothing. Be anxious, nothing. It's an even more emphatic way than what Christ said in Matthew chapter 6, where he said, do not be worried. Do not be anxious for anything. In Matthew 6, Christ gives specific objects not to worry about. And Paul cuts straight to the heart of the matter and says there's not even one single object to worry about. Which points to a constant rest. When the believer is anxious for nothing, there is peace. And there's the opportunity for joy. It is, a, it is a constant rest to our soul. It is worth noting that this is, again, a present tense command, which implies an ongoing and constant lack of anything to be anxious about. It points to our confidence in having a constant place of rest in Christ, the constant opportunity outside of anxiety to choose joy in Christ to rejoice in the Lord. And so our pathway to peace is marked by incessant joy, renowned forbearance, marking the Lord's eminence, being steadfast in uncertainty, and fifth, having a constant reliance upon God. Look with me at verse 6. Again, Paul says, Be anxious for nothing, but... Drawing a contrast, he says, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. He's drawing this stark contrast between what a believer ought to be anxious about, which is nothing, and what the believer's response ought to be in any scenario where anxiety would be the typical worldly expected response. It, it, it's hardly expressible how joy or hope-filled this contrast is. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Paul says that the concerns and the requests that do materialize have a disposal site. That's joy-inducing. 
Not only do we have a disposal site with this contrast, it's all-encompassing. In every situation, Paul says, in everything by prayer and supplication. That means everything. There's no circumstance, no time, no situation in which you cannot take your requests before the God of the universe. In every time of trial... And in every anxiety-inducing situation, we have a divine outlet, a divine disposal site, if you will, for all our anxieties, our concerns, our worries, our upsets, our melancholy. We can choose joy in the Lord constantly, incessantly, because we can bring our requests before Him. In everything by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known. It's the same verb that Paul uses earlier on for being renowned or being known by all men. This time it's in the active, active voice. He again uses this term because it's something that ought to be a naturally observed phenomenon in the body of Christ. He's instructing an active, ongoing, making known to God. Elsewhere, he says, pray without ceasing. It's the same idea. But why does he say make known to God? Does God need us to remind him of our situations? He's sovereign. He put us here. He decreed that we would be here at this moment in this time. So why does Paul say make known to God? Is it as if we can give God knowledge? No. Because it's for us, not for God. When we humble ourselves before the Lord in prayer, in every situation, choosing joy, being renowned for our kindness and forbearance before men, when that is our modus operandi, we are humbled before the God of the universe. Paul is issuing this command because the human tendency is to try and cope on our own. We've all tried. We've all seen people try. Sin is the greatest coping mechanism for an unbeliever. That is what idolatry is. It is a coping mechanism. For the soul outside of Christ, for the person who lives outside of Christ, sin is the only coping mechanism they have for the pressures of this life. We have a greater hope. We have Christ. We have the resurrected Christ. We have the hope of eternal life with Christ, a glorified body with Christ, the sinless eternal state with Christ. We don't have to cope alone. We don't have to cope on our own terms. When we cope on our own terms, we cope in sin. Paul understands the human condition well enough to know that it is just natural for sinful man to attempt to handle life's problems on their own. 
to attempt to handle life's anxieties apart from God? And then what is our response to that even? When our attempts to handle our own anxiety fails because we've gone to the wrong place, we then turn around and blame God because we didn't turn to him in the first place because obviously it's his fault and now my anxiety is his problem. And Why'd you do this to me? Because human beings are fickle. Because the human heart is fickle. The human heart is deceitful above all else. And we can trick ourselves into thinking that it is God's fault for our sin. When we wreck our lives because of our own malfeasance, it is natural for us to naturally, in our sin, think that's, that's God's fault. I didn't. I didn't have any control over that. I mean, sure, yeah, I shouldn't have, you know, done heroin for 34 years, but eh, that's, that's God's fault. Why would God let this happen to me? But we have a greater hope. As believers, we have a greater hope. Always a greater hope. We don't have to cope in sin. We have the hope of coping in Christ. Let's look at the nature of this command of making known to God. First, it's an entreaty. An entreaty. It's that state of being before a superior, making an impassioned plea for assistance. There's a constant nature to it. It's a daily, ongoing, unceasing mechanism of joy and peace of our own entreating to the Creator. It's also a personal entreaty. Because as much as God is Creator, as much as He is God, He is also Father. When we consider who He is, what is man in comparison to Him? We ought to be on our knees before Him in humility, crying out for His assistance, recognizing His greatness and His majesty and His glory. Because the personal nature of this entreaty must lead us to the humble nature of the entreaty. Because as much as He is God, He is also Father. And as much as He is Father and Shepherd, He is also God and King. It's also a very specific entreaty. It's not broad generalities or pious-sounding sermonic prayers filled with even sound theology that Paul is speaking of here. He's speaking of specific situational concerns. Beloved, we have the opportunity to speak to God directly and to request specifically, to entreat Him specifically, Do you realize who, who this is we get to talk to? From Genesis 1 to Revelation 21, this is the God of the universe, the God of glory, the God who in Isaiah 6, even the angels cannot look at directly because of His holiness and His glory. And we get to speak with Him, to entreat Him directly. 
Beloved, rejoice. There should be no other response. Life's circumstances will try to drown you out, but you get to go, God, help. And just quickly, let's look at the means. The means of this entreaty. There are three different means for this entreaty. One is the umbrella with thanksgiving. It marks both the prayers and the supplications of believers. Thanksgiving is the background, the predominant tone of the Christian life. To pray in any other spirit, according to one commentator, to pray in any other spirit than thanksgiving is to clip the wings of prayer. Prayer without joy is a demand. Not humility. It's hostile, not peaceable. It is self-reliant, not God-reliant. When there is no joy, no thanksgiving in the prayer. Second, by prayer with thanksgiving, Look at the example of Paul and Silas. Remember back to Acts 16 when they were in Philippi for the first time. They were thrown into prison. Their response in prison, listen to 16.25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God. Their response was prayer. They were in the middle of a prison likely facing death. They didn't know. They didn't know what was going to happen. They'd angered a mob and they'd been thrown in prison. Who knows what's going to happen the next day. But their response? Prayer and singing in praise to God. There are few better means of bringing joy to your life than to bow before the throne of God and humble dependence upon Him, entreating Him. Third, by supplication with thanksgiving, Paul adds to this reminder of the primacy and power of prayer, the specific enjoinder of petition. When put together, Paul is using what are largely synonymous terms in such a way to drive home his point that there are no situations, there are no times when the believer ought to be performing anything outside of having laying it at the feet of God. No matter what you do, no matter what situation you're in, no matter the positivity of it, no matter the joy of it, no matter the hope of it, no matter the melancholy of it, every situation, Every circumstance is an opportunity to lay it at the foot of the cross, at the foot of the throne of God, and say, help me. Making known our requests to God in a constant, humble, prayerful, and specific petition. One final point here. In everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Sometimes these little phrases will slip past us. 
Meditate on the depth of those two words. To God. It suggests more than a mere direction of prayer toward God, but a specific oriented movement in His direction. It suggests that God is already present. He's always present. His presence is the atmosphere around us. An anxious foreboding is the presence of, in the presence of the Father is out of place. Any sense of melancholy, any sense of anxiety in the presence of the Father is out of place. There can be no help apart from entreating the creator of the universe. There is no peace to be had, no lack of anxiety when God is not the one to whom prayer is directed. When God is not sought, there can be no peace for our time. The pathway to peace, therefore, involves incessant joy, renowned forbearance, marking the Lord's imminence, steadfastness in uncertainty, constant reliance upon God, And every journey has its destination. Bilbo made it to the mountain and he made it home. Frodo made it to Mordor and he made it back to the Shire. Paul made it out all the way to Rome and then he made it back to Jerusalem. Every journey has its destination. Our sixth and final guidepost is that destination. The incomprehensible destination. Peace. The peace of God specifically. This is that peace which rests in God and is wrought by him in the soul, the counterpoise of all troubles and anxieties. It is a result of everything preceding. It is the final destination. You cannot get here without getting past the other ones first. Without an incessant joy, without a renowned forbearance, without marking the Lord's imminence constantly in our lives, without a steadfastness and uncertainty and a constant reliance upon God, there is no peace. The peace of God results from all of these. In short, the pathway to peace and freedom from anxiety leads to God. The only path to peace, the only path out of the darkness of this world, the only path out of depression and anxiety is found in Christ, is found on this pathway. There is no other pathway by which peace from the cares and concerns and anxieties and stresses of this present world can be escaped. It is only on this pathway that anyone is able to obtain true peace. The pathway starts with an incessant joy in the Lord and culminates in an incomprehensible peace from God, which then leads to an extra abundance of joy and hope. It overflows from there. When joy leads to peace, And true peace is had that leads to more joy because more joy will result in more peace. It is both incalculable by the mind and unconquerable by our worries. When this peace is experienced, you will want nothing else. 
The true believer will choose the joy just to have the peace. Will pursue doggedly the peace. Will pursue doggedly in the most difficult of circumstances to have that joy, to rejoice in the Lord for peace from God. Because the source of this peace is God. The more we delve into the nature of this peace, the greater the depth of our understanding of it. It is infinite because it comes from God and it can be plumbed for eternity without being exhausted or fully understood. It cannot be fully known. It is incomprehensible. It is, in the words of Paul, surpassing all comprehension. Not only is it incomprehensible, but it's also protective. It's protective. This peace, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is important. As we wrap up with this final, final, final aspect of the peace of God, do not miss out. The peace of God is the garrison of the soul in all the experiences of life, defending it from the external assaults of temptation or anxiety and disciplining all lawless desires and imaginations within. The picture of God's peace is the picture of the sentinel at the guard guarding the tomb of the unknown soldier. The picture of the queen's guards around Buckingham Palace. There will be no intruder. There will be no assault that makes it past. It is an impenetrable guard against the stresses and anxieties of life. The picture of God's peace standing guard resembles that of a well-armed military garrison guarding a precious or important station. Paul is saying that that precious station, which warrants such a strong and impenetrable guard, is that of your spiritual nature, your inner life. Our hearts and our minds our hearts, referring to our will and our emotions. I think that applies to anxieties a little bit. And our minds indicating our volition and our thought processes or purposes. Kind of applies to anxieties as well. In light of his previous commands in this passage, Paul is indicating two objects that will be guarded by the peace of God. That is, first the heart, second the guarded mind. He is drawing an important line of focus to the role of our inner life in the battle against anxiety. The spiritual battle for our soul is one in joy being guarded behind the fortress, behind the walls, the sentinels, the garrison of God's peace. Everything in life flows from the heart, Proverbs 4.23. Every word we say comes from our heart. We have no room to say that anything that we do or say, well, that's not us, that's not what I really am. Yes, everything we do, everything we say is a result of our own hearts. 
but we have the hope that our hearts can be guarded by an impenetrable garrison, the peace of God. And notice the sphere of that protection. It's not just a garrison guarding us. There's a fortress as well. What is that fortress? The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a distinctly Christian sphere of security here. Christ is our fortress. Christ is our fort behind which nothing can get through. We are protected by God. We are protected by His peace, which fights and guards our hearts, and the walls of the fortress that is Christ will let nothing get past. Take joy. Rejoice in the Lord. No harm can befall us so long as we are in Christ, so long as we are His. As we think about this pathway to peace in closing, where are you on this pathway? Are you choosing joy in the midst of your circumstances? Are you struggling to choose joy? Do you struggle knowing how to choose joy when it seems like everything else in your life is falling apart? One option for you is the church. Beloved, the church is the organism for encouragement and edification to build one another up. God has enabled us to love one another in Christ. If you are struggling with joy, grab someone around you. If you know someone is struggling with joy, grab them. Show them Christ. Show them the forbearance and love and kindness. Are you known by those around you, your family, your friends, your co-workers, as someone who is forbearing, someone who is kind and gentle and loving? When you feel your rights are being violated by others, do you grumble and complain, or are you joyful in response? Do you seek first to glorify God in those situations or find some way to regain the right you lost? Do you live your life in light of the imminence of the Lord? Are you indelibly marked by the nearness of Christ? Are you living a life consistent with the reality of His return, His imminent return? Do you live as if He is present or distant? When you're faced with trials, where do you turn when you become anxious? Do you strain your thoughts and your mind to bend them to the will of God? Do you wrench your mind from what it is trying to overwhelm you with in anxiety? Or do you just let yourself fall? Do you run to a secular solution, a secular psychology that cannot provide peace? Do you run to a secular solution that will in some way, 
reduce the symptoms of anxiety, but cannot give you lasting peace? Do you rest in the Lord or run for comfort to the world? What is your prayer life like? Just practically speaking, how much time do you spend in prayer? What do you pray about? Do you do so incessantly, unceasingly? Does your prayer life reveal dependence on God in every area of your life, or are you just broadly speaking to God about random, broad, overarching principles in life? He cares about the details. He created you. He cares about the details of your life. Joy takes it before Him. Peace takes it before Him. Finally, is your life showing the signs of faithfulness that indicate the presence of these guideposts on the pathway to peace? I'm going to close out by reading a short passage from Isaiah 26. And just You don't need to turn there, just listen as I read, and then we'll pray. But does your life show the signs of faithfulness that indicate the presence of these guideposts on the pathway to peace? Isaiah 26. In that day, this song will be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. He sets up walls and ramparts for security. Open the gates that the righteous nation may enter, the one that remains faithful. The steadfast of mind you will keep in perfect peace because he trusts in you. Trust in the Lord forever. For in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. For he has brought low those who dwell on high, the unassailable city. He lays it low. He lays it low to the ground. He casts it to the dust. The foot will trample it. The feet of the afflicted. The steps of the helpless. The way of the righteous is smooth. O upright one, make the path of the righteous level. Father, as we live our lives, I pray that you would enable us, continue to enable us, to live our lives choosing joy, that we would choose a joy that is incomprehensible, pursuing peace that we can't explain, a peace that guards our hearts and our minds, that we would do so as an act of worship to you. When the stresses of life, the anxieties of life are at their strongest, Father, glorify Yourself in our lives. Guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Help us to choose You even, even when we don't want to. Help us to be incessantly joyful, rejoicing in You because we have peace with You. And may we be renowned for the glory of your kingdom, as those who are loving and kind and tolerant, as we share your gospel to spread your kingdom. It's in your name I pray. Amen.